Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, August 16th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim continues the history of Disney's haunted mansions. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that everyone's heard of Karl Marx, who invented communism, but nobody knows his sister, Anya, who invented the track and field starter pistol. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Well, as long as we're talking about Mark's siblings, why not talk about Gummo? <laughs> the second youngest Mark's brother, he left the act in, in World War One to go fight for the country, and Zeppo stepped in. And Oh, really? Zeppo was the backup? I didn't know that. Zeppo was the backup. Huh. After he came back, Gummo became basically Groucho's agent. In fact, he was the one who made the deal for the original You Bet Your Life. Really? You know, you can watch, uh, um, you can watch repeats of that on... YouTube. And Jay Leno is now shooting the revival of You Bet Your Life, which was supposed to start appearing around the country this fall. Oh, is he really? Oh, I thought he was producing. No, no. Jay's, you know, again, you could spend only so much time in the garage, Len. Occasionally you have to get out and do things. So, valid point. Valid point, Jim. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Brian Moline, Kathy Lowe, and Jason Cartwright, and longtime subscribers. Gary DeBoard, R. O'Leary, 519, and Philip Moss. Jim, these are the folks who run the little-known attraction, Monsanto's Basement of the Future. Stocked with everything from canned goods to hi-fi stereos and indoor shuffleboard, supposedly this attraction still exists beneath the Pixie Hollow area of Disneyland, if you know where to look. True story. Okay, I got a book up playing Dick and Dan. Everyone I'm... thinks they know the parks, but do they really I know, know the no, parks? that's exactly, I had no idea, I had no idea. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, so the one big news event this week is that the Halloween Boo Bash has started in Walt Disney World in the Magic Kingdom. Our own Christina was there, who says it was super quiet, and they had day of tickets available. Jim, I thought this was originally sold out. I saw pictures the day of of the signage out front of, of mm-hmm. City Hall that basically said, don't even think about coming in here. We have no tickets for tonight. And then there were tickets available. I wonder if this was a bunch of last minute cancellations. Oh, geez. Yes. Yeah. COVID situation in Florida was, uh, was a little bit uh, unsettled last week. Mm-hmm. I wonder if people have just decided to put up some uh, some trips because of it. Because let's face it, mm-hmm. so if you want to come for Halloween, you've still got two months and change. This is true. This is true. Yeah, so you've got plenty of time. Okay. Yeah, that was super interesting. Something mm-hmm. to watch, though. I agree. All right, Jim, we got a bunch of listener questions. In fact, we have so many that we could, can't get to all of them this week. Okay. Um, but let's go through uh, as many as we can. First one's from Christy, who says, do you think any hotel discounts will be released to cover the rest of this year? Or are those 40% off deals a thing of the past. So, Chrissy, I don't, I don't think we're going to see anything you know, like in October, for example, because that's when the 50th is happening. But, you know, a lot of it depends on economic recovery. A lot of it depends on how COVID goes. I know that Disney's putting some really good deals um, on Priceline and Hotwire right now. So mm-hmm. you can get really good deals at Yacht Club or at Coronado or at Pop. Um, that's what I would look for there. Makes sense. Second question is regarding the Halcyon, which sounds like a toothpaste name, by the way. I, I, <laughs> now I'm ruined for that. That mm-hmm. name is just done for me. There we go. I haven't noticed that the pricing samples were for generally low credit time. I'm shocked at what this 
cost could be during peak travel times. Given that, do you think it's really good business for this to be set up as a cruise on land as opposed to a regular resort on property that people could visit and be inspired to stay there? I think the idea with doing only 100 rooms in the hotel was to keep the quality of the gameplay high and to keep the resort super exclusive so they can keep the price aside. What do you think, Jim? No, I agree. And and remember, the cruise-like experience on land, that's just out there because until the first set of guests come through the Halcyon and then Disney's hoping go out and evangelize for the experience. I mean, Disney's never done this sort of immersive experience before. It's kind of like Walt trying to explain. Well, it's it's a main street, you know, a turn of the century, but there's a castle at the end of it. And, you know, it's just sort of like, really? Okay. All right. I'll be over here waiting for this giant failure. So Yeah. When you're trying something that's never been tried before, it's hard to get people to understand the vision. There you go. Uh, last question from Christy. About the speculative changes to FastPass Plus in the last week's podcast, which of these, if any, do you think will be included as perks to annual pass holders? Ah, mm-hmm. uh, so this is an interesting question. On the one hand, you know, Disney's already got your money, so I'm not sure how many perks they need to give to annual pass holders. The second thing is I think some of these things are relatively limited. So, you know, Lightning Lane Plus, Jim, the thing we talked about where Disney might be selling 50 or 100 of these an hour. I don't know that there's enough capacity there. No, for Disney to be giving those to annual pass holders. You might get something like, I think Max Pass mm-hmm. at Disneyland was free. The, you didn't have to pay the registration fee to use it in Disneyland. So it could be that you know, whatever the technical equivalent of Max Pass is uh, will be free for annual pass holders. But Jim, do you think they're going to give anything out for free? Disney's got to keep a foot in both worlds. It, it's this whole business plan. And in fact, I want to take a moment here, and if you folks have not heard the episode of it's tomorrow, the Tomorrowland Society show that you did earlier. Right, with Dan Heaton, right. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, that's some excellent listening, folks. If you haven't heard it, you need to go over there. But you made a point as part of the show about talking about how it's fairly obvious that Disney is pivoting away from customer satisfaction as the metric that they're going for for the success of the park to increasing guest spending, you know, the the revenue they get from that. And that's the problem. We keep using apples to try and measure what has become an oranges situation. Yeah. The business plan has changed and we're still over here going, but you used to do it this way. And it's like, hey, we're not doing that anymore. Yeah. I think that's the big thing that it's a completely different set of metrics now mm-hmm. that are being used and it's only revenue. And, and Jim, uh, without mentioning any names, we've, we've had conversations with people on the inside about this Yeah, okay. and it's, it, it seems to be, I mean, no one, no one has yet said that particular thing is wrong. Mm-hmm. No, no. That to me is the big tell. There has been no pushback. You know, to the fact of this, yeah. this, this is, the word that's getting out there and you don't see Disney stepping up and saying, well, no, 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 that's mistaken. Let's correct that perception. (laughs) You know, they're too busy. You know, they've got their hands on your ankles and it's like, I know he has change. Come on. You know, I I saw him pocket 50 cents. I know it. (laughs) All right. Here's a a question from Chris Mm -hmm. who says regarding how the upcoming fast pass changes will impact guest expectations. If I pay a hundred dollars for my family to experience an attraction, on top of $600 for admission to the park, my expectation for that attraction will be through the roof. All the effects should work. It should be spotless and everything should be perfect. 
But if that's not the case, mm-hmm. is Disney going to guarantee the show quality experience provided in conjunction with the increased costs? So, uh, Jim, my question on this is always goes back to mm-hmm. the effects that work on Splash Mountain, mm-hmm. right? So, the for me, Splash Mountain isn't Splash Mountain until I see a hopping brer rabbit, mm-hmm. which is one of the no- most notoriously difficult animatronics to keep running, right? But I want to see Brer Rabbit hopping. I want to see the water jumping in the laughing place. I want to see all the effects work in Splash Mountain, right? Yeah. And so what happens when that's not the case? And, and you know, Splash Mountain is one example, right? But imagine you pay $50 or whatever to ride Rise of the Resistance mm-hmm. and one of the pre-shows isn't working. Mm-hmm. What happens then? This is terra incognito right now. I mean, it's one thing. When Splash at Walt Disney World malfunctions, or, or for that matter, at Disneyland, the folks at Guest Relation are, are fairly confident, given the amount of time it takes people to walk from the back of the park to the front to complain. It's a very, very small subset that's going to do this. But if you factor in the notion that you know, you've paid that extra amount of money, People will make that trip. Oh, yeah. When there's money involved, it's going to be a different thing. Yeah. And that's it exactly. That right now, I know from conversations with friends at guest relations, the notion is, well, what is the make good in a situation yeah. like that? And what if you have a cascading situation where these days, thanks to social media, if somebody goes to guest relations and says, hey, this happened and they, they offered this as a make good. And then somebody tweets yeah. out to everybody in the park to the effect of, hey, because this attraction isn't working today or the way it's supposed to, they gave us this. Right. What do you do then? There's going to have to be a limit on it, which is, which is interesting. But yeah, money, money changes expectations a great deal. No, no, no. Absolutely. And uh, you got to think that the, the park ops people are going to want to be super detailed. Mm-hmm. They're going to want a, an explicit flowchart that says, when this happens, mm-hmm. do that. And I think that's going to be an evolving policy. Can I interest you in some Mickey bars? How many Mickey <laughs> bars can you eat? <laughs> there, there 12? We go. There we go. 15? You know, just, just stand here in the shade and we'll continue to, to shovel them in. Over the history of the Disney parks, though, there has always been that moment where the Imagineers hand off the attraction to the ops team. And the ops team is then looking to run this show at yeah. least 10 hours a day, sometimes 15, 16, you know, 17 hours yeah. in a row. And I remember talking with Mark Davis about the original version of Pirates of the Caribbean. And he said, if you watch the opening day special for Pirates of the Caribbean, the characters, the animatronic characters look so much better then in 1967 than they do today. And he said, well, that's because the original masks had additional series of clasps inside that held them that much closer to the face. You got a, a much more you know, realistic reaction. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Well, but here's the thing, that because they had this additional series of clasps, they tore, they broke that much uh, quicker, they needed oh, to be replaced. Okay. And over time, Ops was like, this is an unnecessary expense. And they began reproducing the masks for the pirate figures without the additional set of clasps to, to hold them that much closer to the face to get that oh. more human read. And you look at Splash Mountain today, this is how the ops team is eventually settled into, okay, that's good enough. For this level of paying guests, that's good enough. Yeah. And now to have these people who are, in theory, paying $15, $16 additional to, you know, to jump to the head of the line at Splash Mountain, yeah, it's like, are you going to give us more money 
to upkeep this attraction because these people have artificially high expectations now. Yeah, that part, I mean, this hasn't been tried before. So this part's going to be super interesting for Disney to see. I know other regional theme parks have done it, mm-hmm. but Disney's a different uh, standard. So. Or so they keep telling us. So. <laughs> All right, here's a question from Jeff. Uh, who says, I'm confused why Disney would use boarding groups for Remy. So last week, we, mm-hmm. I speculated that Remy is going to be using boarding groups when it, uh, when it opens on October 1. Uh, you've mentioned the ride is extremely reliable in terms of operation from testing. Boarding groups make sense for Rise of the Resistance, where you never know if the attraction is going to fail or for how long. But if Remy's reliable and is a high capacity, why run it? Or is it mainly a ploy to lock people into Epcot for the day? All right, so... It's a great question, Jeff. Mm-hmm. So remember two things here. Not only is uh, boarding groups used for uh, rides that are unreliable, like rides of the resistance, mm-hmm. but remember Bob Chapek's famous quote that uh, 10-hour lines are bad, therefore you can't have 10-hour lines for Remy, mm-hmm. uh, even though you might if the ride opened and was super popular on October 1. So you can't have anything approaching a 10-hour line. The way to do that is to use boarding groups, where you basically allocate all the space for the ride at the beginning of the day, tell everyone else I'm so sorry mm-hmm. and go from there. Also, uh, there, you know, Remy hasn't run with real passengers yet in Florida, so it's a way for Disney to hedge its bets there. But I think it's in this particular case, it's the uh, it's the Bob Chapek saying 10 hour lines are bad thing. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. By the way, Jim, isn't there a uh, a Disney earnings call tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> And again, it, there's a lot of questions that I don't think Bob Chapek and the CFO are going to want to be dealing with. Question number one, why are you pissing off Scarlett Johansson? Well, there <laughs> like, what's, we go. What's, what's the business strategy behind that? Yeah. <laughs> and at a time like this where if you're Bob Chapek, you know someone's going to ask about what's going on in Florida. And what's your response? Oh, with, uh, co- yeah. Yeah. Co- yeah, what do you, yeah. So. I mean, I think the response is going to be, we follow all, all state and local regulations, and it's mm. up to them. All right. Yeah. Here's a comment from Adam regarding the Star Wars hotel pricing. A seven-night Eastern Caribbean cruise in the fantasy for two adults is almost $1,000 cheaper than two nights in that hotel. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Adam, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I think Adam has a would-you-rather uh, uh, undertone to that question. There you go. Here's an interesting question from Peter. Mm-hmm who says, I don't think there's any chance the Galactic Star Cruiser itinerary you mentioned on last week's show is real. My theory is that you'll be getting onto the ship with a story that you're going on a space cruise, but then things go off the rails. If you look at it from this perspective, and you take out everything from the first Sabak training, that's the card game on day one, to the second Sabak uh, tournament on day two, as the time when things are not quite as they should be, It'd make the experience much more valuable and exciting. I imagine there'll also be entertainment up to midnight. Too many of these itinerary events look to be dull to all but the most hardcore fans. So, Peter, interesting theory you've got there. It, it, it is, it is. But you need to understand the world that Bob Chapek came out of consumer products. It's like you look at Sabak training as like, oh, God, that sounds deadly dull. If you're Bob Chapek, it's, it's like a it's like a uh, mahjong tournament on. Uh, <laughs> it's on quaaludes, all right. You know, just sort of yeah. like you know the, exactly, yeah. But you know, more subdued. There we go. You bring it all down. There we go. <laughs> but if you're Bob Chapek, this is an opportunity to sell a Sabak deck. This is a revenue stream unlike any Disney has ever done before. That if it hits and is hits as big as the company thinks it's going to hit. 
Paris, which is redditing its own Galaxy's Edge. Likewise, Disneyland, they are all sort of just looking on with great interest to see if if this is the success that, that some people at the company feel that it is. The Halcyon will be joined by other ships of the line that will dock in Paris and Anaheim. Is the next ship uh, named the Sensodyne? <laughs> That reminds me, I have some stuff to get at CVS later today. Thank you, Len. That's a reminder. I need to put that on the list right now. I'm just riffing on Christie's joke before. So we'll see. We'll see, Peter. I don't know. That's a that's a super interesting idea. I would be. It is. I'll be very surprised, but Mm. uh, you know, if it happens, I think it'd be super exciting. Mm. If you think about the first Star Tours, this is the attraction that introduced us to the concept of something goes horribly wrong, and I have the uneasy feeling that this itinerary we've been showed is the itinerary and sadly nothing's going to go horribly wrong there will be a storytelling moment or two precisely yeah. timed at 4 15 you know. <laughs> precise moments of spontaneity there is we go the, uh... there we go all right last uh, questions from john and it's a trip planning question by the way i love these guys so keep sending them in uh so john says if you're staying at fort wilderness and need to get to epcot would it be faster to take the bus to epcot from fort wilderness or take a ferry to the contemporary then the monorail to the TTC, and then to Epcot, assuming that you're staying closer to the marina, so the, uh, the marina at Fort Wilderness. I've heard the internal bus system at Fort Wilderness is not the most reliable. So it's reliable, it's just slow. Um, for those of you that haven't stayed at Fort Wilderness before, to get anywhere, you typically need one or two buses. Um, if you're staying back, uh, towards the back of Fort Wilderness, you have to need to take an internal bus to the front, and then uh, there's another bus stop the front of Fort Wilderness where you can go to Epcot and Magic Kingdom and uh, the other parks and things like that. I think, John, it's really close in terms of timing. I was trying to sort of map this out before we started recording. And I think it's, just in terms of hassle, it's easier to just do the internal bus in Fort Wilderness and then go to Epcot because then it's point to point both places. Hmm. I think going ferry to the contemporary and then the monorail to the TTC, you've got to wait for the ferry, number one. You don't know what that capacity is going to look like. Going through waters on a boat is definitely slower than driving a bus. And then from there, you've got to wait for the monorail at the Contemporary. And then you've got to switch monorails at the TTC. So if you look at the, the ways that you could be delayed, I think there's two using the bus system and three using the ferry and monorail. And so I would go with internal bus system. But man, that's, mm. that's a great question. No, it is. It is. Supposedly, as part of the Reflections project, there was an overhaul of the transportation system for Fort Wilderness that was in the works that now uh, has been tabled right along with that DVC. So. Is that just delayed or is that, are we done with that? Because they've cleared the land, but not done anything else. It's another one of these magic eight ball moments, Len. I no, mean, yeah, we, you don't, know, we don't know yet. Yeah. I mean, it just, I mean, just in like the past three and four weeks talking with folks at, at Walt Disney World, the plans that were solid in June yeah. are suddenly shaky in early August. Yeah. We've, we've sort of talked about this. Like we know that, you know, Tron mm-hmm. and Guardians are coming up over the next year or so, mm-hmm. but there's really nothing else that we've seen started that is like, okay, this is going to be ready in 2024. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They keep waiting for the new normal to become normal. Yeah. And yeah. it just, it's so dynamic right now. 
Do you think we'll hear something at uh, the next D23 later on this year? I think the new D23 is is just basically going to be, hey, we're here for the 50th, then aren't you happy? And please don't ask too many questions. Oh, really? You don't think there'll be anything future now? I uh, don't, you know, I, you know, the, the weird part of it is between the relocation of WDI to Florida. Oh, right. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's hard to talk about what the future holds when, Future planning at Disney at this point is like, are we two weeks out or three weeks out at this point? Please tell me. <laughs> that's actually a great point. I wonder how much that's going to, the move of Imagineering is going to impact the timeline of any future projects. Mm. Because they're supposed to be moved over the next 18 months, yeah. which is not a whole lot of time when you think about the number of positions that conceptually could be moved. No, no. Yeah. Anyway, John, uh, no matter which transportation mechanism you try from Fort Wilderness to Epcot, please let us know how it all worked out. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim continues the history of Disney's Haunted Mansions. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Jim, when we left off last week in part one of the Haunted Mansion history, Walt had sketched out what was going to be in his first theme park, but this was a few years uh, before Disneyland got built. And the idea was to put a haunted house between the end of Main Street and Sleeping Beauty Castle. To be correct here, um, to put a haunted house between Main Street USA and Frontierland, because the Haunted Mansion or the Spook House attraction for Mickey Mouse Park and later transferred to Disneyland predates the castle. The earliest plans of the park have no castle whatsoever, which when you think about the company today where, you know, yeah, I mean, not having a castle would be yeah, crazy. I mean, you know, just that every Disney film on the planet opens with us seeing the castle or it was the corporate symbol for a lot of divisions of the company. And the fact that this particular attraction actually predated that. So 52 Walt pitches it to the city council. They say no, but at that point Walt had already decided that, yeah, the eight acres of land I can buy and the 10 acres to the left and the 10 acres to life, the right I could have leased from the city, this 28-acre site isn't big enough. So we got to find a different site. In fact, that was the thing. You know, the Harper Goff once told me the story about he was devastated. He's at this meeting with Walt, mm -hmm. with the city council, and it's like, oh, that's it. The project's over. He's like, no, no, I'd already decided we, we needed more land anyway. Don't worry about it. <laughs> this is September 52. And Walt first starts looking at his own and realizes, geez, there are so many variables. I can't do this by myself. And so he consults with his friend, architect Walter uh, uh, Beckett. And Walter says, Walt, here's what you want to do. 
you want to go to the Stanford Research Institute, which is... SRI, yeah. 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 This is where Walt has his first conversation with a gentleman you know quite well from having burrowed through his archive, Harrison Buzz Price. Oh, okay, okay. Harrison at this point is a 30-year-old guy who's just gotten his master's in business administration, and Walt is just 52 at this point, and he's a smart guy. Um, but at the same time, he's also smart enough to realize when he's out of his depth. What was fascinating with Buzz about dealing with Walt during this period was that he'd sit down with them and they talk like contemporaries. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just like, you're this hugely successful guy. You run a studio, you have movies named after you. And I'm this schlub who's here at the Stanford Institute. He said, no, no, no. I need answers to these questions that only you can get me. That's flattering. I had this amazing conversation with Buzz in, in May of 2004. That was when his his book, Walt's Revolution by the Numbers, came out. And he, he started off the Disneyland land search by saying, you know, Walt, do you have a bias about where you think Disneyland should be built? Outside, of course, of the site directly across from the studio, Riverside Drive. You know, that was going to be a no-brainer. So was there a particular place in the Los Angeles area that Walt wanted to focus on advance? And, and Walt turns to Buzz and says, absolutely not. You do the feasibility study, you determine the very best pond to build this plane, and we'll go from there. And as they're they're going from the 28-acre site to, all right, how much land are we actually going to need? Walt starts to think, well, oof, okay, I got to come up with new things to add to this park now that we're going outside of the 28-acre site. And so Mickey Mouse Park was basically Old Town, which was you know, a Frontierland-like area, and Newtown, which was really Main Street, USA, with, with some fantasy elements scattered around. At this point, there's a very intense 12-week-long period where Buzz is going to the five different counties in the Los Angeles area, trying to amass information and, and give Walt some options. And Walt, in turn, is, as you know, Buzz mentions the size of the potential property piece of property, Walt mm-hmm. starts to talk about how he's mutating the Disneyland plan. And he's sort of like, at one point he goes to, to Buzz, yeah, um, uh, what would you think of about a castle at the end of, of Main Street? <laughs> the, size of the, the size of the land that you're researching gets, you know, basically doubles overnight. Initially, Buzz was trying to figure out what Walt was doing. So wait a minute, didn't you say that at the end of Main Street, it's like the corner of Frontierland, you were going to have the spook house so are you going to do your scary attraction inside of the castle now so no 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 the castle is going to be the portal to a whole new land that's going to celebrate fantasy this is what really impressed buzz about walt because it showed off all of the time that he'd spent at other people's parks and other people's attractions oh sure he was like people like to be scared and so an attraction like that that this haunted house thing I've been thinking, we really need to move that deeper into the park. We've got to give people an excuse to explore the park. So if we put this further back, that then gives them a reason to go into this far corner of the park, which will help with, you know, merch sales and food sales. And and it was just one of these things where for a guy who was only just getting into the business, the fact that Walt had this sort of grasp of guest traffic patterns. Yeah. Flow and space. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Exactly. So this is him moving chess pieces around the board before they've even bought the land. Even after they cut the deal with ABC, that first schematic aerial view that Walt had drawn with Herbie Ryman in September of 53, you look at that thing and it's like, 
Holiday Land at this point is still behind Main Street between Main Street and Frontierland. The Rivers of Romance is still between Tomorrowland and Main Street USA. And there is this giant, crazy, huge castle at the back of the park, which is then surrounded by this high wall. But this is the thing they carried into ABC and said, hey, you want to be part of this? And it's like, absolutely. And then as soon as everybody signed the contracts, it's like, okay, everything moves. <laughs> great. Things are great. To get back now to the Spook House project, Walt has now decided, okay, we're going to push that deep into the park. In fact, the site that they had originally picked out for this thing is pretty much where the entrance to the Temple of Forbidden Eye is now located. Really? But here's the other thing. If you want to be the God's honest truth about where the feel of the Hunter Mansion, the type of storytelling they're willing to do, mm-hmm. we have to now pivot to San Jose, California, to the Winchester Mystery House. Ooh, now I've heard of this. I've heard of this years ago, but give us some. Uh, some I, I actually I have been there and taken the tour, and this is a designated California historical landmark. Also, on the at this point on the Natural Registry of uh, Historic Places, it sounds like a story that Stephen King made up, but it's all <laughs> all true. This Queen Anne style Victorian mansion was once the personal residence of Sarah Winchester, who was the widow of firearms magnate William Wirt Winchester. The Winchester rifle. That's it. Guy. And and that's okay. the key part of the story right there. They started building this house with the huge fortune that they had amassed with the sales of the Winchester rifle in 1886. But about this same time, Sarah develops an interest in the supernatural, goes to a psychic because She's lost her husband. She's a child that's perpetually ill. There's a lot of weird things going on. And the psychic basically tells Sarah that all of the indigenous people who have been killed by the Winchester rifle have vowed vengeance on her family. And so Sarah's, well, what can I do about that? You know, and it's like, well, there isn't a whole lot, but there are some safeguards. What the psychic explains to Sarah is the way that she can at least have temporary protection for her family, is that the construction that's now going on on the Winchester family mansion can never stop. Ever. Never. If it continues 24-7, the spirits will be confused as they enter the house. <laughs> if, if you deliberately build things like stairways that lead to nowhere, hidden panels, corridors that go beyond wandering, they will, in turn, you know, they will be so confused they they can't do anything to the family. So she really, and I swear to God, this is for the next thirty six years. Construction continues on this house. It only stops on the day Sarah dies, which is in September of nineteen twenty two, at the age of eighty two, and by then the legend of the the Winchester Mystery House had traveled the world, and and. People wanted desperately to see this place, so just f- oh yeah, I, I I heard about it years ago. Like it was it was a thing even then. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating because it, it, again, it's this weird combination when you visit it. About it is artisan furniture makers and and you know, carpenters doing state of the art work for the the 1910s and 1920s. Beautiful stained glass windows, that sort of thing. 
But it's all built on top of rooms, which are built on top of rooms, which are built on top of rooms. And there just seems to be no design to the craziness of what's going on. So anyway, five months after Sarah dies, the estate throws hope in uh, the house to tourists. So we now jump ahead to 1957. And Walt and Ken Anderson, an Imagineer or an animator who was one of the very first Imagineers. In fact, he did a lot of the early work on a lot of the Fantasyland dark rides for Disneyland. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, as this project begins to move forward and Walt's like, I want to walk through. And it's like, well, if we're going to do a walkthrough, let's go look at the most famous haunted walkthrough. Let's go. And so they travel up to San Jose. They spend the day at the Winchester Mystery House. And, and, and again, it says a lot about Walt that he didn't ask for a private tour. He and Ken spent the day repeatedly going on tour after tour after tour oh. to observe how people interacted in the space, you know, how the tour pulsed through the building. And Ken kept amazing notes from this visit to the effect of how many people were typically in each group. I want to say 22 to 24, how long they stayed in individual rooms. You know, some rooms you spent 30 seconds with. Oh, trying to figure out like what, what sort of like creepy chills the uh, guests like. Yeah. And, you know, and length of tour, you know, and he came back with all of these notes and then based on all of the information that they had about what worked at the, the Winchester mystery house. Mm-hmm. Ken took everything that he observed, everything he liked about the experience, and then wrote a scenario for a Disneyland take on the Winchester Mystery House. And this is very different from the 99 happy haunts that we know today. This is the story of one very unhappy married couple, Captain Gore and his wife Priscilla. Captain Gore was once a fearsome pirate acquires a ridiculous amount of wealth during his time on the sea, which involves killing dozens of people. But he now retires from the sea. He changes his name, assumes the identity of a respectable gentleman, and establishes a new life in a quiet seaside community. He even takes as his bride a beautiful young woman called Priscilla. And because her husband is rich, Priscilla could have everything her heart desired. All that Captain Gore asked in return is that A, Priscilla never go into the attic of the great manor house that these two share, and more importantly, that Priscilla never, ever look in the sea chest that Captain Gore keeps up in the attic. Yeah, let me guess where the story's going to. (laughs) All right, so Priscilla can't help herself. One day, she sneaks up to the attic, she finds the sea chest. And she opens it and there inside discovers the secret of her husband's identity, that he was not this respectful business, that he was once a notorious pirate. Unfortunately, Captain Gore stumbles upon his bride in the attic just as she's going through his old sea chest. And in a fit of rage, the old pirate kills Priscilla on the spot and then stuffs her body in this very same sea chest. What Captain Gore hadn't counted on is because Priscilla was not laid to rest in the traditional way. She's now a restless spirit who reaches out through the spirit realm to the members of Captain Gore's long dead crew, all of whom got 
slain as Captain Gore was transitioning to his new respectable businessman phase, figuring that that, that, that that's uh, some sort of uh, weird uh, witness protection program, Jim. <laughs> Yes. I'm protecting myself by go. killing the rest of you. There we go. <laughs> interesting, interesting. All right. So it's a scene very much like the Grand Ballroom from the okay. Haunted Mansion, only you're standing in front of these giant floor-to-ceiling windows with lace curtains flapping in the breeze, and you're looking out on you know, supposedly the bay that just lies below the Gore family manor. And it's, it's, a, it's a moonlit night, and there out in the harbor, you see a full-size pirate galleon manifests itself uh, and then begins sailing directly toward the mansion. Ooh. That would be a great effect. Well, it, it was a great effect, and which we'll get to in a moment. So, with the help of Gore's crew, Priscilla begins to torment her husband. And finally, Captain Gore can stand it no more. He goes up to the attic. He throws a rope over a rafter and he hangs himself. That's the hanging, uh, the hanging body at the beginning. There we go. All right. Wow. All right. So it's these specific story scenes that the original walkthrough version of Disney's Haunted Mansion was supposed to tell. And Walt was evidently so excited because, you know, Ken came to him with the scenario he'd written and a series of, of storyboards showing the various effects that he wanted to mm-hmm. do that Walt immediately said, let's try it out. So they actually build prototypes of all of these scenes. And in fact, there's a memo from this period. And Ken talks about, we are conducting tests with groups of 40 people using the Zorro sets on the back lot of Disney Studio and Burbank to determine the practicality of the timing of the proposed walkthrough attraction. So notice, it's not that this isn't going to go into production they're actually at this point just trying to determine the size of the groups that can be pulsed through the, the, the attraction. The memo goes on to say that if the show in each scene of the Disneyland's Haunted Mansion lasts just a minute, that would leave 15 seconds for the guests to enter the room and then 15 seconds to clear the room. The version that Ken had put together had eight specific show scenes. And with this 15 seconds in, show scene 15 seconds out, uh, it was a 12 minute long experience. And that means. If you get 40 people in each show scene, at any one time, you have 320 people inside of this walking tour. Yeah, so 12 minute, uh, so 1,600 people an hour. That's not bad. No, no. And, and that's the thing. They figured over an average operating day at Disneyland, which at that point, they were averaging 10 hours a day. You know, the, the park would open at 8, would close at 6. That's 16,000 people through this attraction. That's not bad. No, not at all, especially for 1957 Disneyland. Yeah, that's moving some people through, yeah. 1,600 people is, is you know, roughly Seven Doors Mine Train-ish. There we go. In terms of capacity. There we go. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, this 12-minute long experience, which we had prototypes of the scene set up on the lot, which people to this day, I mean, I, I've talked to people who, who did this. First of all, the scene I described to you about the pirate ship manifesting itself and then seeming mm. to sail, the one that evidently blew everybody's mind was when you get to the, the end of your story where Captain Blood has supposedly gone up to the attic and you're in a low room. You, you've entered this, this, this low room and the, the person tells the story and then directs your attention to the clearly solid wooden ceiling of the room. You can see the beams that are holding up the ceiling, and then suddenly, instantaneously, the ceiling goes transparent, and you are looking straight up into the attic, 
and you can see Captain Gore's body gently swaying from the rope hanging from the rafter, and mm-hmm. it, but it's directly over the very same sea chest that Priscilla is in, and it's just sort of like, how the hell did you make that transparent? How the hell can I say it? How, how is that sea chest in the middle of the air and not falling on us? And how, do they, how are they going to do that? This was so many uh, use of screams, uh, scrims, excuse me, uh, Pepper's Ghost. Pepper's Ghost, okay. All right. If you go online, a lot of the, the boards that Ken drew, you can see them to this day. And he just encapsulates the story beats tremendously so you've got this thing where walt loves it they're doing the test for capacity so why doesn't this walkthrough version of the haunted mansion get built and open at the park it sounds great the headless horseman uh again (laughs) foiled by the the headless horseman which we'll get to in the 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 next installment of the series that that scene with the with the pirate ship floating or materializing sounds incredible. I'd love to see that. So the interesting thing about this, mm-hmm. so if the, if the background really was mm-hmm. Sea Captain, yep. then that would make sense with what is in Boundless Realms, mm-hmm. the Haunted Mansion book, because in that book, the premise is that the Haunted Mansion is not in the Hudson River Valley, but it's supposed to be near the ocean. There we go. There we go. Ah, and, interesting. And interesting. They, they, I should mention one last gag that, that ran throughout the entire attraction. You, you've come off the porch. You're in the room where your host is explaining the history of the Gore Mansion and showing you the portraits of Priscilla and the captain. But there in the room, you don't realize it until moments before he moves you to the next room, is the sea chest. Really? You know, they, and it's only the last guests who were leaving the room noticed that, did that just vibrate? You know, and then it's like, as you move through the mansion, you begin to realize, wait a minute, that's the same sea chest. <laughs> you know, how is Oh, I I have to look at this. I didn't know this. Yeah. How is this falling us through the building? And in fact, the very last thing you see as the tour guide is thanking you for taking part in the tour. And you, this is just after you've seen the show scene with the, the floor going transparent. And you're in a very teeny tiny room with the very same sea chest, which now begins to walk towards you. <laughs> which is what you know, then compels you to leave as quickly as possible. Something wow. clearly inside the sea chest that wants to get out. That's fantastic. No, I hadn't heard any of this. This is great. Yeah, no, it's a, it was a killer story. Should have happened, but again, there's a lot of shoulds in this world. So. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes including a new show on the history of Disney's theme park castles. On next week's show, Jim continues the history of Disney's Haunted Mansion. And you can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. We'll be flipping flapjacks and pouring out choke cherry syrup at the 32nd Annual Choke Cherry Festival on Saturday, September 11th, starting at 6 a.m. on Main Street in beautiful downtown Lewiston, Montana. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.